uh, if you have your copy of God's Word, you can open up to the Gospel of John. This is going to be our, our last Sunday here before I, I kind of take a break uh, from uh, working through the Gospel of John for the summer. I like to work through uh, the Psalms, uh, which are always a, a joy uh, to study and, and to, to, to preach through. And uh, As you're turning here, we're going to wind down our study uh, in, by looking at John chapter 15, verse uh, 16. And, uh, many of us have, at one point or another, probably had a DTR conversation. Maybe you think, what in the world is a DTR conversation? Uh, a DTR is a define this relationship conversation. It's usually when uh, two people are in a, a friendship and one of them wants answers. One of them uh, may uh, say, like, am I in the friend zone? Is there any romantic interest in the, this uh, relationship in the future? And there's kind of a, a serious conversation. And there's a, a sitting down uh, and seeking to, to clarify uh, where this uh, relationship uh, is intended to go. And somebody wants answers. Uh, and uh, I, I've heard, I guess maybe one of you... Uh, TMU alumni or Master's College uh, alumni can can verify this. I've heard that there's like a well-known bench or a table there at the, the Master's College. That's like if you're sitting at that particular uh, bench or at that table, everybody knows that this is a serious conversation. It's like the, the DTR table, uh, as I think it's uh, known. I, I look back at my own time. If, if you guys are, are married, you probably had one of those conversations uh, with your spouse at one point or another, especially if your relationship began as a friendship and then morphed into uh, romance. But I remember uh, kind of my DTR conversation with uh, my wife. Uh, we were both serving in youth ministry. And I was going to, I kind of, we were talking back and forth, and I had arranged to talk with her after uh, youth ministry got out that uh, evening. And we had a, a friend who was also serving in youth ministry, uh, and he just wasn't catching on that she and I were trying to have a conversation later. Uh, and so he just kept hanging out with us way, way late into the night. And eventually uh, he's like, okay, I'm going to head out. I'm like, okay. Uh, and so we were finally able to uh, to talk after that. But those uh, those DTR conversations uh, are uh, important. Uh, and it sets the, the tone and the expectations. It clarifies things uh, concerning a relationship. Uh, and I would say that this particular verse that we're going to study this morning, this is a this is a DTR verse. Uh, this is Jesus defining his relationship uh, with the disciples uh, and clarifying how he is going to interact with them, how he has interacted with them in the past and what he expects of them in the future. Now, we've been working through uh, this portion of Scripture that is known as the Upper Room Discourse. And it's known for that because it began back in John chapter 13. Uh, verse 1, where we have uh, Jesus there with the, the 12 disciples uh, initially. Uh, it's on the evening uh, before his crucifixion, so it's on a Thursday night, and they are participating in the Passover meal together. And Jesus, uh, at the beginning of John chapter 13, he got up and he washed the disciples' feet. And that was absolutely shocking to them, for him to, to get up uh, and serve them uh, as the lowest servant was intended to serve uh, others. And when he got to Peter, if you remember, what, what did Peter say? Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. 
then Peter went from refusing Christ to saying, okay, now just wash everything. Wash, wash me from head to toe. Jesus says, no, that, that's not necessary because you, you're already clean, but because you've looked to Christ in faith. So you just need a little uh, small cleansing. So we have the, the foot washing at the beginning of chapter 13. And then that was shocking. And immediately after that, Jesus announces that one of the 12 is going to betray him. Which would have been equally shocking. That one of these 12 who had been walking with him for more than three years would sell him out and to betray him. And so Jesus is going to announce that betrayal. He's going to, to quietly reveal who the betrayer is to the Apostle John. As they were reclining around the table, he was able to, to speak directly to the Apostle John. He says, this is going to be the one who dips uh, his bread in uh, the bowl uh, with me. Uh, and Judas does that, and then Judas uh, gets up and Judas departs. And then it's just Jesus and the 11 remaining disciples who are going to be faithful. And once, once Judas departs, then Jesus uh, makes another shocking announcement. We've already had two. He washes their feet, he announces betrayal, and then he's going to make the, probably the, the biggest announcement that he's going to be departing from them and that they can't follow after him. This was in chapter 13, verse 31. It says, Therefore, when he had gone out, speaking of Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So that gets uh, dropping another bomb on these disciples. And he gives them the command that they are to love one another. This is the defining mark. Uh, as Jesus departs, he says, you are to love one another, and the entire world will know that you are following me, that you're my disciples if you are loving one another. But after hearing that Jesus was going to depart, Peter, the, the disciple with the mouth-shaped foot, or the foot-shaped mouth, there we go, that's the one. The other's really weird to think about. But uh, Peter says, wherever you're going, I, I am willing to follow. I, I will follow you even if it means to death. And then Jesus drops another bomb. He says, actually, Peter, you're going to deny me. And you're going to deny me before the sun rises. So this is like wave after wave of, of shocking announcements to the disciples. So all of the disciples were, were distraught. So Jesus in chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And Jesus promises that he's going to go and he's going to prepare a place for them to, to, to come after him. Uh, and I believe it's... Uh, Thomas, who says, Lord, we don't know the way. How do we follow you? And then the famous statement in chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is going to go, and, and the way to get to him in heaven is actually him himself, looking to him in faith. After that, Jesus again exhorts them to, to trust and believe in him because he is one and united with the Father 
He's going to give them the promise that as he is departing, he's going to send a, a spirit, the, the helping spirit, uh, to dwell within them. And also in chapter 14, verse 21, that he himself will love uh, those who uh, follow him and he will disclose himself to those who follow him. Verse 23, as well, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, speaking the father and the son, will come to him and make our dwelling with him. So Jesus is is going to depart, but he's going to still be with his disciples. He's not going to abandon them and leave them as orphans. He promises them peace in chapter 14, verse 27. In verse 28, he's going to promise that he will one day return uh, and get them. And then in verses 30 and 31, it says that the ruler of this world is coming. I think what he has in, in reference there it speaks of uh, Satan dwelling within Judas. And while all of that was being said in the upper room, Judas is uh, working elsewhere with the chief priests and conspiring to come and arrest Jesus. And they're probably on their way to the upper room where the last meal, uh, last supper was being held, seeking to arrest Jesus. So Jesus says in verse 31, all right, let's get up and let's go from here. Chapter 15 is Jesus walking through the city with the disciples, teaching and instructing them. And he has said to them in chapter 15, he's given the the illustration and the parable that he is the true vine and that they are to be connected and united with him. If they are not connected to him, they have no life. They are to abide in him, to remain in him, that they will be uh, pruned and trimmed by God in order to bear fruit. And this will bring glory to God and them bearing fruit in their lives spiritually will actually show and prove that they are his disciples. We saw that in chapter 15, verse 8. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Then in verses 9 to 16, what we've been studying and working through, Jesus has given this command of how The disciples are to relate to one another. They are to love one another. And Jesus announces this as his command. He says that in verse 12. He says it again in verse 17. Verse 13, he talked about uh, the greatness of his own love. That greater love has no one than this, that one lay his his life down for his friends. Then as we saw last week, he, he talked about the elevation, the transition that the disciples were, were going through, that Jesus would no longer call them slaves or servants. He would call them friends. And he was going to lay down his life for them. And then we come to our DTR verse in verse 16. He says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go... And bear fruit, and that your fruit would abide, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So in this verse, Jesus is is making some clarifications about his relationship with the disciples. And specifically, he's going to be clarifying who initiated, who started this relationship. He's going to clarify also what he is commanding them to do. What are the, the marching orders Uh, And then what will be the results if they do what he is commanding them to do? And it's helpful for us to to have the opportunity to to eavesdrop onto this DTR conversation. 
Uh, we get to, to hear the, the clarifications that Jesus is making to these 11 disciples, and we also need to understand that these clarifications apply to us as well, to every single disciple who has followed after Christ over the course of the last 2,000 years. So what are these clarifications that Jesus is making here? Namely, he's going to, to clarify about the choice, the mission, and the results of his relationship with the disciples. And we're going to dive into these three clarifications, but I want to pause first and I want to pray and ask for the Lord to be with us in our study. Father, you know our hearts and our minds. May you direct both of those towards you now. Help us to leave behind all of the the hustle and bustle of our week. Guide us now into the study of your word so that we might grow in love and affection and obedience to Christ. We ask for your blessing and your guidance in his name now. What we see first as we look at this, this single verse, we're going to see these three clarifications. And the first clarification, as I saw or I mentioned earlier, is that the clarifying the choice Uh, And he says, uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And the the normal pattern at at this point in time uh, was that disciples uh, would would look out at the landscape of teachers. They would look out at the landscape of of rabbis in in the culture. And and they, as disciples, would go and attach themselves to one of those teachers. We see this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. Not that it was a good thing, but there were factions in the church and people were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas or Peter. So they were uh, connecting themselves to a specific teacher and that was their prerogative as disciples. They got to choose who they were going to follow and who they were going to learn from. But Jesus takes that normal cultural pattern and he flips it on its head. He says, you didn't choose me. I was the one who chose you. Jesus is saying that he was the initiator, which makes absolute sense because he is the sovereign Lord of all creation. He is uh, always, it is always God who is the initiator of salvation. And this is found uh, everywhere in uh, the scriptures. If you keep your, your finger here in John's gospel and, and go back with me to, to John or not John, Genesis Uh, Genesis chapter 6, we see that God is always working and intervening. He is the one who who begins this this process of drawing people to himself. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, we see uh, the wickedness of uh, humanity on uh, the earth during the time of Noah. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But then at the end of that paragraph, verse 8, it says, But Noah found favor, he found grace, he got what he did not uh, deserve. He found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. And then, verse 9, says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among those in his generation, and Noah walked with God. But which one came first? God extending favor and grace to Noah. If you turn over a few more pages there in Genesis over to to chapter 12. We see God calling a man named Abram. And at that point, 
in time, Abram didn't know Yahweh. He didn't worship Yahweh. He was uh, an idolater. And God calls Abram to leave his home country uh, of Babylon or uh, the Chaldeans. He says, come over to the land of of Canaan. And God begins to to make these promises to uh, Abram uh, before Abram has done anything or initiated anything with God. Uh, And it wasn't until Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham truly responds to all that God has done for him. Genesis 15 verse 6 then he believed, speaking Abraham, believed in Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God is the initiator. He's the one who acts uh, to save. Now, a little bit later on, if you turn over to, to Deuteronomy, and this is going to be a really uh, important uh, passage, and it's going to have parallels with what we see in John's Gospel. But Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. Is God describing his choice of the nation of Israel? He says uh, in chapter 7, verse 6 of Deuteronomy, For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession. And out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, Yahweh did not set his affection on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, Yahweh brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. There's a lot of similarities to what Jesus is is saying here in John chapter 15, verse 16. The Lord chose Israel in the Old Testament, not because they were so great, but because they were so little, because they were so tiny, they were so few. And he chose to to set his affection upon them, to bless them and, and to rescue them from slavery in Egypt and that they would be the object of his redemption, not because of anything that they had done, but because of who he is, because of the oath and the promise that he had made to Abraham, generations prior. Jesus is is saying something similar here in the Gospel of John. That he was the one who did the choosing. The disciples didn't choose to follow him. He was the one who selected them. If you think back to other Gospel accounts, and you you see uh, Andrew and Peter fishing, and Jesus comes to them and he says, follow me. He comes to uh, James and John who are fishing with their father, and he says, Come, follow me. He goes to Matthew, the tax collector, in the tax booth. He says, hey, follow me. And what do they do? They stop what they're doing, and they go and they follow him. He's calling these men specifically saying, hey, come after me. Come learn from me. Follow after me. Luke chapter 6 describes this process of how Jesus went about before he announced and selected these 12 specific uh, men who are going to be apostles. An apostle just means that they are going to be sent ones. But listen to Luke chapter 12, or Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Now it happened that at that time, he, speaking of Jesus, went off to the mountain to pray, and he was spending the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Uh, and so at that point in time, they were. Uh, big crowds who were following after jesus so he goes up prays 
draws all of those down to him once in the, the next day. And then out of that mass group, he chooses out 12. Because you're going to be uh, the, the 12 who follow me, and I'm going to personally pour into you and send you out. Christ chose those disciples and set them apart as objects of his affection and of his discipleship simply because that was his prerogative. That's what he was choosing to do. And remember, in verse 13, greater love has no one than this. Jesus is going to lay down his life for these disciples. And that is what he is choosing, not because they have done anything to deserve it, not because they have uh, worked for him to act on their behalf, but that's always how God's choosing functions. It is unconditional. God doesn't choose based upon anything that he sees in us or anything that he does not see in us. He doesn't choose based upon any circumstances. He doesn't choose based upon our personal characteristics. God's choice is dependent only upon his sovereign will and upon his love and affection. And it's hard for us to to wrap our brains around that kind of choice because that's not how we decide things, especially not in the realm of love, right? How do do you choose a spouse? Going back to that DTR conversation. Uh, It's somebody who wants to also pursue you. Right? You marry somebody who, who loves you and you love them. There's a, there's a mutual affection uh, and attraction towards that other person. That's how you choose a, a spouse. So it's very much based upon the other person. Right? How do you choose a puppy at the pet store? Right? You, think of, you think about uh, that choice. Right? The one usually who's the, the cutest or the cuddliest or just the one who didn't bite you. Right? That's usually how you, how you make that selection in, in the pet store uh, of choosing a a puppy. And, and so there's, there's lots of conditions upon our choices. But God doesn't choose in those human ways. He looks and he says, I'm going to choose because that's who I choose. And that kind of boggles our mind. God's election of these 11 disciples is completely unconditional. Again, not based upon any future response they would have, not based upon their character or their cuddliness but based only upon his love. I love the way Charles Spurgeon puts it. He, he, says, he said this, he said, Election is based upon affection, and that affection is its own fountain. It bubbles up from itself, and that affection leads to a calling and a saving of people. And that same electing power that God gave and extended to these 11 disciples as Jesus is speaking to them is also true of every single believer. Listen to how these disciples, these apostles wrote concerning God's sovereign choice. Galatians 1.15, Paul writing says, but when God who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, Paul understood that his salvation began and God was working and had a plan for his life from the time that he was uh, itty-bitty in his mother's womb. Ephesians 1, 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Speaking of all of those who would look to Christ in faith. And then 1 Peter chapter 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as exiles scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. See, the disciples understood the sovereign and gracious, the, the loving choice of God that's absolutely unconditional, bestowed upon those whom he loves. But many of us have struggled to, to wrap our, our mind around this. We don't necessarily like uh, to think that we had absolutely nothing to do with our uh, salvation. We want to think that well, maybe there was something in me that God saw, and that's why he chose me. love what John Owen, the, the great Puritan theologian, says. He says, we choose Christ by faith. God chooses us by his decree of election. The question is whether we choose him because he has chosen us, or he chooses us because we have chosen him, and so indeed choose ourselves. But we affirm the former. That because our choice of him is a gift, he himself bestows only on them whom he has chosen. So God chooses us, uh, and then we respond in faith. And that is what we are called to do. We are called to look to Christ in faith, and that faith itself is a gift from God. God is the one who initiates salvation, and that should lead not to a, a puffing up of our chests in pride, uh, but but a, a lowering of our heads in humility. Uh, we need to, to humble ourselves under this reality that we have done absolutely nothing to merit salvation. God, God has initiated that and chosen and saved us by His grace. If you really want to be humble, turn with me over to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 because it describes the, the kind of individuals whom God has chosen and how God delights to work. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. It says, For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may abolish the things that are so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. If salvation is due to my choice and my efforts, then I get to boast. But if salvation is uh, initiated and begun and acted upon me by God, then who gets to boast? God. And I get to humbly praise him and rejoice and worship him for how he has acted in my life. Salvation is not by your efforts or energy. It's not by your works or your wisdom. But God initiates and draws people to himself through Christ. And yet that doesn't in any way, shape, or form remove your responsibility. What is your responsibility in all of that? You are called to look to Jesus in faith. Right? The things that Jesus is laying out here, we wouldn't have any comprehension of it, and thus he reveals it, because those are the, the invisible workings of God. What we do see and what we are commanded is that we are called to respond. Will you look to Jesus in faith? So don't get caught up in, am I among the chosen? I don't know. 
you're called to respond. Will you look to Jesus in faith? Will you trust him? Will you forsake all of your uh, self-sufficiency and acknowledge that your only hope is in Christ? That's what we are called and commanded to do. We are to turn to him in faith, seeing our sinfulness and crying out for mercy. That's the the first clarification in this DTR conversation that Jesus wants uh, to set the disciples aright with. Because I chose you, you didn't choose me. Then there's a second clarification. Jesus clarifies the mission in the next phrase. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. So Jesus uses this uh, word of appointing or assigning, uh, and that's the idea of setting apart or or ordaining for a special service uh, that the same word was used uh, in the, the Greek Old Testament to describe that the laying on of hands of the Levites as they were set aside to be priests unto the Lord. And the same uh, description also for Joshua to, as he was going to, to, to succeed Moses as the leader of Israel. And so he's saying, you have been appointed, uh, you have been assigned a, a task. There have been, in essence, the hands laid upon you to go and do something. Uh, and then Jesus says uh, that he appointed that you would go. But here in this passage, he doesn't necessarily uh, fill in the details of that. It's like, well, where does he want them to go? What does he want them to do? I think the implication is uh, that he wants them to go and fulfill the, the great commission, which is going to be fully explained later on in Matthew chapter 28. If you want to turn there with me, I know we're doing a lot of turning, but it's a good uh, Exercise Matthew 28, uh, we see the Great Commission and what Jesus is going to command uh, of the disciples as he uh, prepares uh, to ascend into uh, heaven. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, this is what the disciples are being appointed and assigned to go and do. They are to go and make disciples, uh, going, baptizing, and teaching. That's the, what the, the progression of the Great uh, Commission. And, and they were told to go and do this. And then Jesus summarizes the outcome of that. But with that little phrase here in the Gospel of John, he says, you are to go and bear fruit. And the idea of that that fruit bearing uh, is the idea of growing in obedience to Christ, growing in likeness to Christ, and uh, and growing in our willingness to go and tell others about who Jesus is and what he has done. Now, that is the, 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 the mission that Jesus is laying out for these disciples. And this is important to, to keep in mind. It's, I remember uh, running track when I was in high school. I ran the, the 110 hurdles, which is a, a straightaway sprint. Uh, and whenever, or prior to getting down into the blocks, what my coach would always tell me to do uh, is whatever lane I was in, at the very end, look down uh, the end of the, the track uh, and pick out a small spot uh, that I would look at throughout the entire race. So when my, my head would be down in the blocks, uh, the gun would, would sound, and I would immediately be running. And when it was time after a few steps to pull up my head, I would find my, my spot. And I would keep my eyes on that spot for the rest of the race. Uh, because if I begin to take my eyes off of the end of the race, 
If I begin to look at uh, the, the, the runners who are right next to me, uh, they're gradually going to pull ahead because I'm, I'm losing track of where I am. Now, if I'm trying to, to find the other runners, if I'm looking around, if I'm looking up at the sky, if I'm looking anywhere else, I'm going to lose track of what I'm to be focused upon. And what Jesus is telling the disciples of where they need to, to focus upon is they are to go and bear fruit. They are to go and live for the glory of God. Growing more and more like Christ, telling others about Christ, uh, growing in obedience to all that he has commanded so that they can teach others to do the same. That is what he is calling them to do, to have that be their laser focus. That is their mission. That is what it looks like to bear fruit for the glory of God. We, and we saw that in chapter 15, verse 8. And that, that bearing of fruit and bringing forth of spiritual results in our lives and in the lives of others, that glorifies God. And he also says that proves, that shows, it demonstrates that you are actually part of Jesus' family. You're, you're part of the true vine, that you are one of his disciples. That is, that is the, the mission, that, that is the purpose that we have been given as Christians, as followers of Christ. And this is, this is really, really important, that we have something in life to run towards. Now, earlier in the, the equipping hour t- this morning, we were walking through all the, the, the books of the Bible, and we're kind of Bible survey fashion, and, and I, I walked through the book of Ecclesiastes. This morning, and and in that book, Solomon is lamenting over and over again that all of life is pointless. Life is, is vain. It's empty. It's futile. It's meaningless, right? Meaning that there is where am I running? What, what, what's my what's my focus? And ultimately, where he's going to circle around and land on is that life only has meaning if you are living it in submission to God. If you, you must fear God and keep his commandments. You are to, to work and enjoy the labor that God has given you under the sun. Rejoice in the wife of your youth uh, and, and labor faithfully. But even then, all of your labor in this life, what's going to happen to it eventually? It's going to burn up and be nothing. It's going to have no value 200 years from now. No one's going to know your name 200 years from now. Is that sobering? Do you know your 200-year ancestors looking backwards? I wish I did, but, but that's the reality of life. And so we need to understand, what am I focusing on? Because this is, this is the amazing part of what Jesus is telling the disciples and us. Is that what Jesus is giving them this mission. In Ecclesiastes 3.14, says that the works of God abide forever. Man's works, they are like a vapor, and they go and they disappear. But God's works remain forever. And the promise that Jesus is giving to the disciples here is he's promising to fold them into the plans and purposes of God. Which means what? That our works can last. And that our life can have significance and meaning beyond ourselves today and tomorrow and years from now. But we can have an eternal impact if we're living laser-focused upon the glory of God. I love what uh, the missionary C.T. Studd said. He says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Amen? Amen. That's what we need to, to see and understand. What are we pouring ourselves into There's a lot of things that we can pour ourselves into that have absolutely no value. 
But what Christ is commanding here and now to these 11 and to all of us is that we would be on mission for him. What he is calling us to do, to go and bear fruit. That we ourselves would be growing spiritually, that we would be pouring into others spiritually. And that result is going to last. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says concerning this same reality. 1 Corinthians 3 says, For no one can lay a foundation other than one which is laid, the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will indicate it because it is revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. Describing as believers, we're not going to be judged for our sins. Our sins have been paid for fully and completely by Jesus, but we're going to be tested for faithfulness. Our works are going to be evaluated with, with fire, in essence, of what have we done in this life Does it have any eternal value and significance? And those things that have eternal value and significance, we will be rewarded for. But all of those things that we're pouring into in this life, will they make it through that testing? No. They will be consumed, which is really, really sobering. And I say that as as an an athlete, as as somebody uh, who's doing well in school, is God going to care about my grades in school? Is God going to care about my football accomplishments? God going to care what level I got to on the video game? No. Well, what about how I love my neighbor? About how I love my family? How did I represent him in my community? Did I demonstrate a, a faithfulness to Christ? Those are the things that are really going to matter the most. All other things are going to be consumed and they're going to wither away. What is it you're going to want to stand before God and offer up to him? God, this is what I have done in response to what Christ has done for me. It's not me trying to earn salvation, but Christ has lived and died and risen again for me. And this is my response. That's what Jesus is commissioning them to. And when we are running our lives, running and living for Christ's glory, these are the results that we're going to see, that, that, that bearing of fruit. We're going to see spiritual change in our life. We're going to see spiritual transformation in others that we're pouring into. We're going to see a harvest growing up of spiritual fruit because that's what we have planted. But, but all too often, we're not seeing that kind of harvest. Why, do you know why we're not seeing that kind of harvest? Because we're not planting those kinds of seeds. But we're planting our own way, our own wisdom. And oftentimes when that harvest grows up that we have planted according to our own wisdom, what do we usually say? I don't like these crops. These are not so good. And you say, well, why did I get these? Because I planted them. And that's what we have to and to understand we're going to continue to get the same crops as long as we're doing the same things. I heard a phrase the other day that the, the lesson continues until the lesson is learned. 
We are commanded to obey Jesus, to follow after him. And if we do that, what we see here in this, uh, in this passage, this third uh, clarification, what the results will be, that what will grow up in our hearts and in our lives will be dramatically different. It will be to the glory of God. That these results are going to be what we see at the end of the verse. That our fruit would abide. That whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He would, he would give to us. Now those are the, the results that He clarifies and brings to bear upon the disciples and upon us. And what Jesus is, is doing here, he's taking a whole bunch of strands and, and winding them together. Right? The reality of abiding in him, of bearing fruit, glorifying God. And the idea that our prayers would be answered. That your fruit would remain. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name that he may give to you. That is, that is a profound promise. And this is the third occasion in two chapters that Jesus has made this promise. Given this promise. Connecting it with obedience. Why would he say this three times in two chapters? Why, why would he continue to say, hey, go and bear fruit and I want your fruit to remain and if your fruit remains and you're walking in obedience, then I want to I bless you. I want to answer your prayers. He says it three times because it's an encouragement for us to pray and to be dependent upon the Lord. It's also an encouragement for us to obey Him. Now, the, the pattern that we see is He wants us to obey, to bear fruit, and then pray, and then He wants to bless us. All of that is, again, when we are laser-focused and locked on to who Jesus is and what he is calling us to do. He lays all of this out with the disciples, these three clarifications. Clarifying that the choice, it was not them, it was him. It's not us, it's Christ who initiates. Clarifies the mission there to, to live uh, for his glory there to go and to bear fruit and he's clarifying the results that if we are living for christ and his glory we will see a transformed life if you if you think about what would typically happen in one of those uh, dtr conversations if you're going to have a conversation about defining this relationship you're kind of at a crossroads at that point right you've been in a in a friendship and one of one of those individuals is like, hey, can this move into a romantic relationship? And the reality of that, someone's going to lay out all of their thoughts and feelings, put all of that out on the table, and the other person's going to respond to it. And there may be an awkward silence. You hope not. And there's going to be a, a response. But that relationship is never again going to be the same. Right? It's either going to be uh, drawing near to one another, it's going to jump over to a romantic relationship and start to move forward, or the other person is going to say, no, not interested in, in pursuing that. And then what's going to happen? 
Are they probably still going to stay close friends? Probably not. That, that, that relationship is going to be different from that point forward. And I think that's, that's what we need to see also here with, with uh, what Jesus is doing in this verse. Jesus is getting ready to depart. His relationship with the disciples is going to be different from that point forward. And uh, what he is laying out on the table here changes our relationship with Christ. Everybody here who's, who is hearing this, because you are hearing him call you to follow him. He is laying out his expectations and clarifying them, putting all of that out on the table. And now, how are you going to respond? What are you going to do? If you have already trusted in Christ, he wants you to continue to grow in faithfulness, excel still more. You've never trusted in Christ. He's calling you to look to him now, to begin to, to follow him. Begin to obey, begin to see your sinfulness and your need of a Savior. Walk in obedience to Him. That's what He is calling you to do now. That, that is the, the urge. And there is there's a great blessing that comes from that. That clarification of this will be the results of, of answered prayer with God and a relationship with Him that you could... That will be far more satisfying than anything else in this life. Again, that's what we see in Ecclesiastes. Solomon pursued anything and everything that he wanted. He was the richest man to ever live. Pursued all of those things, and he says, none of them satisfy. Talked about that earlier. How How can anything but an infinite God satisfy insatiable hearts? Only an infinite God can do that. That's what Jesus is is laying out for the disciples here. He's clarifying the relationship. He chose us. He calls us to and appoints us to serve him. And the results are a deeper and more profound relationship with him in which we are praying and having answered prayers with him. What a joy. What an encouragement. Amen. Let's pray.